0: Good morning. Good to see (laughs) y'all. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together, this time as the body of Christ to share with one another, to care for one another, to lift one another up, to praise you together, to worship you together. We pray that this morning as you speak to us through your word um, that we might be built up Edified, strengthened by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you didn't know, uh, we have folks do various uh, components of a Sunday morning worship. And whether that's uh, the prayer or the communion or the preaching, whatever it is, um, we don't coordinate that stuff. Uh, We have the text. We know what the text is going to be. Um, It is a delight for all of us who preach to come up here and find how well integrated all of that stuff is. And we had nothing to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) that that's all of God this morning um, was a lot like that Uh, between the prayers and the uh, and the communion and the rest. um, It knit together uh, very nicely to uh, prepare our way uh, to hear from God. So let's see what we can share from this. Uh, You may have heard, I don't know, maybe you're young and haven't heard this, but adversity is often called the school of hard knocks. And we can learn a lot from hard times. We can even profit by them if we're willing to um, endure the pain. (laughs) Kurt is enduring the pain right now. He's got a piece of bone missing, and as he plays, um, he sometimes winces. And uh, (laughs) we're we're grateful that he's willing to work through the pain. These bits of adversity, uh, these hard knocks, uh, can draw us near to God. They can draw us nearer to God. And believe it or not, they can draw us nearer to one another as well. Adversity can generate compassion for others because we needed it when we were suffering with it. But it's only true if we see it as coming from the hand of God for our good and for His glory. You've got to see that in the adversity that you suffer through. You may have heard that hard times make us strong or tough times build character. And that's true. It does. But hard times can also break Weak men and weak women. It it can happen. It can break us sometimes. It's more than we can bear. So, if it's not the hard times in themselves that strengthen us, I had to ask myself, then then what does? What is it? So I'm going to say it again. We need to see them as coming from the hand of God for our good and for His glory. We never want to ask the question, just how sovereign is God? That's, he's either sovereign or he's not. He either has control over all things or he has control over nothing. And so when those hard times come, that too is from the hand of God. And the only issue for us is what am I going to learn from this? How can I grow through this? How can my faith and my, my trust in God increase through this adversity? God strengthened his people in the desert for 40 years before he let them possess the treasured holy land, the promised land. A weak and sinful generation died in that desert. They weren't ready to build a nation under God. They just weren't ready for it. They were self-centered, not self-controlled. The promised land would do them no good. And so another generation raised in the desert learned to be dependent on God for their daily existence, for their daily bread, the manna that fell from heaven. They learned to rest on that to be dependent on God for their very hope for tomorrow and so he went before them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day and they followed him trusting in him and then and then having learned their lesson they crossed the Jordan the greatest generation of World War II needed to be toughened for the battle to come so God sent them the Great Depression some of you may be old enough. My father lived in the Great Depression. <clears throat> he was a full-grown adult at the time. Made him strong. The lessons of awful privation helped to produce the greatest generation. Their strength was forged in adversity. We seldom look at adversity that way, but it was forged in that crucible. They learned to be dependent on God for their daily existence and their present hope, just like the Israelis had done before them. And then... They overcame the enemy. And then they overcame the enemy. Lesson first, prepare for the battle, then wage the battle. Last week, Jason taught us from God's word that what brings certainty in uncertain times is beholding our God. Magnificent message. What brings comfort is beholding our God. What gives us hope is beholding our God. Well, I'm going to tell you that what enables us to endure trials is beholding our God. That, too, is true. Adversity forces us to turn to God. Adversity forces us to turn to God, to lay hold of Him in all His glory and in all His power. Jen's prayer this morning was about that, about turning to God in those times, knowing that God hears our prayers That he responds to us, that he sees us in those moments in which we are so weak and so vulnerable. And he comes alongside us to strengthen us. And then the things of earth begin to grow strangely dim, the hymn that we sang. But only then. Only then. We're in the book of Isaiah. The Great Depression lies ahead for Israel. It's called the Babylonian captivity. God used it to strengthen them for the battle yet to come. That adversity brought them low, (laughs) but it did something else. It also bound them together as a people, as a nation. After their captivity and after 400 years of prophetic silence, those who learned their lessons well through that adversity and remained faithful to God in the midst of it would be prepared to receive the Messiah, that God would make their paths straight. I believe hard times lie ahead for our own generation, this generation, us. God will not permit the rampant corruption and godlessness that we see to continue unopposed. He just won't. He's a righteous and a just God. It breaks his heart to see the sorts of things that we are seeing around us. He'll use hard times, both privation and conflict, both of those, to prepare and to strengthen his people for the battle to come and also to soften our hearts. We don't often think of adversity as softening us. We often think of it as hardening us, but it does. It softens us. Please open to Isaiah chapter 41. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. This passage breaks neatly into three parts. So unlike my normal pointless sermons, this is a three-point sermon. (laughs) The first is judgment awaits us all. These are on your handout. Judgment awaits us all. This is verses 1 through 7. The second is God will deliver his people. That's verses 8 through 14. And third, there is a battle to come. Verses 15 through 20. So we're going to take a look at uh, one part at a time. As Jason explained last week, Isaiah is a prophetic book. Oh, good. (laughs) Real straight, clear, forward, easy to understand. It's also a history book. It's also a history book. Uh, It describes real people and actual events that took place in the past. It's meant for the generation that first heard it, and yet for all the generations that followed, and that includes us, as Jason pointed out. We heard that God isn't limited to time and place. He sees the end from the beginning. That's a declaration he makes about himself. He ordains all that is and all that is to be. He created all and he rules over all. You are his beloved people, and he is your beloved God. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He draws you near for a particular purpose that you may know him. He draws you near that you may know him. He loves you tenderly. He loves you compassionately. And he loves you with an everlasting love. He is a God of both justice and of mercy, justice for those who break his laws, and mercy for those who seek refuge in his tabernacle. Today's passage is all about that contrast between justice and mercy. Part 1. Judgment awaits us all. Isaiah 41.1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east when victory whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. Perfectly clear what he's talking about, right? (laughs) Well, we see here the spirit being spoken of. That's the sword. This is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the bow that we see here. That's symbolic of God's judgment shot into us like an arrow. How do you know that, Bill? Well, I'm glad you asked. For example, in Psalm 7, verse 12, it says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Oh. And in Lamentations 3.12, he says, He bent his bow and set me up as a target for his arrow. Ah. Huh. So when we're interpreting Scripture, what do we use to interpret Scripture. Scripture, there you go. Here in verse 3, he pursues them and he passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. God declares, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. I'm the one who did this. Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong, bro. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, oh, yeah, that that looks good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it can't be moved. So we'll pause here. This is less clear. (laughs) Like John's revelation, it's hard to tell who's being spoken about and what's being said about them. It's also hard to tell if it's the prophet speaking or if it's God himself speaking, isn't it? Well, I, I sometimes uh, edit old dead guy's works, stuff written in the 1600s, 1700s, and the constant refrain that I have is, your pronoun has no reference. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Well, and that's sort of what we have here. It's also hard to tell if the prophet is speaking. God himself, it's a courtroom scene. We know that from last time. This is the, is the courtroom scene opening up for us. All who are present are told to listen in silence. In the old days, they'd have this humongous they'd go, Wonk, wonk, wonk. All ye here. You know, and, and everybody would then be quiet, you know, and the judge would enter into the room. And that's what's going on. Then the witnesses are called because this is a trial. It's clear that this is about the judgment of God because it says so in verse 1. Let us together draw near for judgment. The audience is the people of the coastlands. Who? Who is that? Israel is not on the coast. If you didn't know, Israel is up in the hills. So in other words, this is about the enemies of Israel who seek its destruction. It's about the Canaanites down down the street. Those who oppose God. So God says to Israel, go ahead, let, let them approach. Let them speak. They'll put their foot in it. <laughs> that, that's an addition to the text. Christ said something similar to those who accursed him, accused him of casting out demons by the devil. And he says to them in Matthew twelve thirty four, you brood of vipers. A winsome, seasoned speech. <laughs> you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That includes us. That includes us. But then Isaiah mentions a conqueror from the east who cannot be stopped. God declares that he has sent this conqueror who will judge the nations, trampling kings underfoot. This is somebody you don't want to mess with, right? Who has done this, God says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last... I'm the one who's done this. I'm the one who sent him. And, of course, we know that Christ is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. So it's easy to see Christ here as the judge over the nations. Takes a little work, but you can see Christ here as the one that's spoken of who who will judge the nations. In prophetic literature, there are normally often two judgments that are spoken of. There's a temporal judgment that comes upon the people of that time. So God can bring a judgment to us here today, in our time, in our nation, and it will be a temporal judgment, but it's pointing to something else, and that's that final judgment. That's the one that comes at the end of time. The temporal ones are examples of that future judgment. God says, in effect, in the same way that I judge this nation at this time, so I will judge all the nations at that time. In essence, he's saying, pay attention. You think this is bad? Wait until that day. And therefore fear the Lord your God. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand that he might lift you up, that he might deliver you in due time, in that day of judgment. In that day, whether it's temporal or whether it's the final judgment, he will deliver you from that because you belong to him. After I wrote the sermon, I went looking through a bunch of commentaries and they're all squabbling over who, who the people are that are being spoken of. It doesn't really matter if this conqueror refers to King Cyrus or the Medes or the Persians or the Babylonians. What matters is that it's the hand of God at work here. Kings and rulers are God's servants to bring about his will in the world. I sometimes doubt that when I watch the news, okay? But they are God's servants to bring about his will in the world. They will bring correction to God's people whom he loves. They are the instrument, the means by which he does that. And they're going to execute his wrath upon the coastlands, those who are not His people. In Jeremiah, God says this, is Jeremiah 25, 9, "Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north," declares the Lord, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. But he's a foreigner and he's a foreign king, and he's going to do a nasty to, to Israel. Uh, yeah, but he's my servant, He's bringing about my will. And I will bring them against, meaning Nebuchadnezzar and his armies of Babylon, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. God does that. That's the temporal judgment, the one that takes place in the physical realm that we experience. But this also points to the Christ. It also points to the Christ. So in Psalm 2 we read the following. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, no, no, Jesus is all love. He, he's, he's not to judge. He's, yeah, he is. We sang this morning about the Lion of Judah who rises up. Yeah, that too is our Lord and our God. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, take heed, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, this is the promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, who seek out his tabernacle, who throw themselves at the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. This iron rod that's mentioned here is Mentioned three times in John's Revelation, just to draw the correlation that the consistency of Scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New. In John's Revelation, it says this, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, in case you're wondering who this is speaking about, he has a name written. What's the name? He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our Lord Jesus Christ being spoken of here in Isaiah Verse 3, it says, He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Interesting translation. In other words, this unstoppable conqueror does God's will in places that he hasn't been to himself, using ways that he hasn't taken before. God is everywhere. So this isn't referring to the Father. And it's not referring to Christ who humbled himself and took on flesh. He limited himself in time and place. Who then does it refer to? As you're reading God's word, I hope you ask questions that are awkward questions that you actually don't know the answer to and are wondering about it because that's the first question I ask. Well, if it's not one and it's not the other, who's he speaking about? (coughs) I'm going to say here that it's the church. Right here in the book of Isaiah, he's speaking of the church which takes the new way of Jesus Christ. Preaching his gospel in every nation. The new covenant in his blood. The new wine in new wineskins. Places that have not been trod before. Ways that have not been used before. It was a new covenant in his blood. Christ ascended to the Father, but he commissioned us. He commissioned us to continue his work of salvation in this world. We call that the Great Commission. We are one with him and members of his body. Christ acts through us. Christ acts through us. We are sent into the world in His name to places He didn't go in the days of His flesh. And so Scripture says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Romans eight uh, thirty-seven. <clears throat> we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. We. The church. The body of Christ. I hope you see the connection. Verses 6 and 7 are a little less clear. with neighbor helping a neighbor, verse 5 tells us that these coastland people tremble and they're afraid of this conqueror that's going to come. So they help each other for the battle to come as this conqueror approaches. But instead of workmen building walls, that's not what's being described here, instead it describes, strangely, goldsmiths, blacksmiths, and carpenters. What's with that? I think it refers back to Isaiah chapter 40, the one we did last week verse 19, where we're told that the workman molds his image, the goldsmith overlays it with gold. What is he describing? Idol makers. Idol makers. In other words, they're busy constructing idols to protect them in that day of judgment. (laughs) That's just funny. Here comes the Babylonian army and I'm holding up my little wooden idol saying, (laughs) Be gone, be gone. They rely on things made with their own hands instead of turning to the one true God to plead for mercy. And yes, that is laughable. It is laughable. It shows how sometimes silly we can be in the things that we rely on instead of relying on God. The text says that this righteous conqueror, summoned from the East, will shatter their idols to pieces and turn them to dust. So much for their cute little wooden idol overlaid with gold. Neatly hammered down. Looks really pretty. The fact that he is coming from the east, is conqueror, that's revealing, isn't it? Yes, geographically, Assyria and Babylon lie in the east. That's the literal part of God's word. Remember, God's word is read on multiple levels. What's the other level? Well, at the coming of Christ, the wise men came from where? The east. (laughs) Oh, they said they saw his star where? In the east. Ah, the dawning of a new day. That was the coming of the Christ. The star went before them till it came and stayed where the young child was to be found. In other words, the day star had risen. The light of the world had come into the darkness, which could not comprehend him. They had no grasp of what was going on. We do. We're very blessed that way, that we do. So what Isaiah describes here is a type of Christ. He foretold of him to the people of his day so they might have hope. He's telling them so they would have hope. We're waiting for Christ's return. Why? That we might have hope. In Second Peter 1.19 and Revelation 22.16, it says that at Christ's advent, this prophetic word was confirmed. The things promised in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New. But in Isaiah's day, they trusted in God's promise about things they would not see in their lifetime. Christ may not come again in our lifetime. And yet we trust in God's promise that he will come. What God promised was deliverance from death and hell. He would condemn and destroy their enemies, but he would deliver his people in that dark hour. We know the privation and hardship and adversity come to believers and unbelievers alike, don't they? Some of us are experiencing those right now. We think, oh, no, name it and claim it. You know, everything is just fine. You know, all I have to do is... No. No, adversity, trouble, struggles... Pain come to believers and unbelievers alike. Jesus promised us that. (laughs) That's one of the promises we don't care for. In this world, we will have trouble. Thanks, Lord. Appreciate that. But we Christians must be careful to distinguish between the correction of a loving father and the wrath of a righteous God. They are not the same, although sometimes they may feel the same. God condemns and punishes his enemies, but he never condemns his children. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. God never condemns his children when he burns off our dross in the flames of adversity. And that's what he's doing, like a silver maker, burning off the dross. It can feel like he intends to destroy us. It can feel that way. Our emotions rail against it. I don't like this. I don't want this and we cry out just like the Israelis did, How long, O oh Lord, until I am delivered from this. But He does not intend our destruction. He does not intend us harm. He intends it for our good. But we have to see it that way. This is something we have to believe is true. This is something we have to trust in. He delivers us from destruction. Some believers are graciously delivered in their lifetime on earth. I envy them. But all of us are graciously delivered in the life to come. That's our hope. That's our certainty. Here we are sojourners, aren't we? Day trippers. We're just passing through. But there, there in the kingdom, we are citizens. Now part two, which offers this exquisite promise and comfort. Part two. God will deliver his people. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Ha, huh, election. Look at that. The offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And he gives an instruction. Fear not. Why not? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you have not yet, I encourage you, memorize that verse. It comes in handy in all kinds of circumstances and situations. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. All those people bad you and mocking you, the news media and social media, <laughs> they're going to be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing, like they never were, and shall perish. You shall see those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Interesting phrase. Oh, yeah, yeah, you'll see them but you won't find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. They will not walk on that highway of holiness with you. None such will be there. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Like a father holding his little child's hand. Take hold. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. (laughs) Those are words of affection. (laughs) Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Did you hear the contrast there between those who belong to God and those who oppose God? Some passages of Scripture are less clear than others, but these, verses 8 through 14, are exquisitely clear. Here we find promise upon promise from the one who holds you in his hands, that he will help you and redeem you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, for I am the one who helps you. God will make us stand in that day and cause us to endure all adversity if, if, if we see it as coming from the hand of God for his glory and for our good. Rest in that promise. Jen's prayer for this morning rest. Rest in what God has promised to you. Here's another. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called you by His own glory and excellence. That's 2 Peter 1.3. There's a promise. Stand on that. Here's another one. No weapon formed against you can succeed. That's right here in the book of Isaiah, 54.17. And again, you can quench all the fiery darts of Satan by taking up the shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16. By taking up the shield of faith by exercising your faith in Christ. It doesn't come passively. It's a choice you make. You raise up that shield of faith. All those accusations that are false, all those accusations start to tear you down. You take up your shield of faith and go, nah, 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 as all those fiery darts are extinguished. Faith is your confidence in what Christ has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the source of your faith. That's the object of your faith. Faith is not an emotion. It's not a commodity. You don't well it up from within you. It has an object, and that object is Jesus Christ and what he has done. That's where your faith rests. The more you learn about who he is and what he has done for you, his love for you, his sacrifices for you, the greater your faith grows. He silenced every accusation against you, fulfilled every law of God on your behalf, and atoned for all your sins. Not in part, but the whole, as we sometimes sing. Lay hold of that promise of deliverance. Lay hold of that. By placing your faith in the promise giver. Not just in the promise, but in the promise giver. The one who loved you and gave himself for you. Fear not. Fear not. Death shall not have victory over you. For Christ has conquered death through death to bring you safely to God, your Father. He came to bring you to God, and he has done that. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, the Anointed One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. That prophetic truth sets us free to live in peace and joy and love. He laid down his life for us. Why? That we might live free of fear that we might walk in his footsteps, even to Calvary, even to Calvary, if necessary. There's work to be done in his name in our own generation, this generation that you and I are living in. He sends workers into his field to plant good seed. Every time you proclaim the gospel, you're planting seed, scattering it into the world for God to use it as he will. And in time, and in time, that seed begins to take root and to grow. When the wheat is ripe for harvesting, he again sends us into his field to gather it up. I don't know if you've experienced it, but sometimes when I present the gospel, I find that about, oh thirty 30 or 40 people have been there before me. <laughs> and I happened to walk in on the morning when that person was ready to accept Christ. Really had nothing to do with what I said in that, said in that moment. It was something that had been worked on by God through his people over a long period of time. In order to think this class yesterday, I gave a bit of my... Uh, testimony. Uh, you know, when did I come to Christ? Hard to say. My path was coming to Christ <laughs> over a long period of time. I said, and I admit it, and I confess here, I am a slow learner. God whacked me up alongside the head with a two-by-four for a long time before I responded to his call. Part three, the battle to come. This is the uh, source of the title of the uh, sermon, verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Okay, <laughs> Give me a hint. What's a threshing sledge? (laughs) Now, who's the you? I'm going to make of you a threshing sledge. This is one of those things that in prophetic literature, uh, I sometimes like to say it, uh, the the language shimmers. It's hard to put your finger on as to what's being spoken of. It's speaking of Christ. It's speaking of the gospel. And it's speaking of us. But this threshing sledge looks like that up on the screen. That uh, wooden boards on the left there, and then those rocks on the right there. It's a set of wooden boards tied together with slots carved in their bottom. Those are the slots you see up there. Sharp rocks are wedged into those slots, and then oxen drag the threshing sledge over the gathered wheat. What does that look like? That's what that looks like. It looks like folks dragging these sledges. Notice the guy standing on it to try to give it some weight. Okay, so they've they've cut down the wheat. They put the sledge on top of the wheat, guys standing on top of it, and a couple of oxen are pulling it across that, that wheat that, that's fallen down. And what it does, it shreds all those little shafts, all those little um, stalks of wheat, <laughs> right? And then it separates, it breaks apart the, uh, the husks on, on the top and, uh, until the wheat falls out, the seed of it. The sharp stones split and cut the stalks, separating the wheat from the chaff. That pile is put into baskets, and you see the people there with the baskets. And then it's tossed in the air. Whee! And the wind comes along and blows the chaff away. And the seed, which is much heavier and has some weight to it, falls back into the basket. Later it's ground into flour. And that chaff, they get out the rakes, and they gather that together, and they burn it. These are the images that are given to us in the New Testament of the wheat and the chaff, this is an image of conquest. This is an image of judgment. It repeats Isaiah verse uh, Isaiah 40 verse 4, that every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. That was in the last chapter. So you can see where it's picking it up and it's repeating this image. This prophecy is quoted by John the Baptist. He's describing himself as one crying in the wilderness. Make straight, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. It's from Luke 3, 5. And then he adds, and all flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So there's a context to this, and that context is salvation. That's the context of this. That's what's being promised. So it's pointing here in Isaiah to the salvation that we have in Christ our Redeemer. It's stretching it a bit, Bill. No, I don't think so. When you see these repeated images in Scripture, it's drawing that parallel. If you haven't heard it before, Scripture's a lot like a tapestry. Okay? And on the front of that tapestry, you see an image, a picture that's made on that tapestry. Then walk around the back of the tapestry, and you see all the little threads that are tied together, here and there in different colors, right? So when we're breaking apart God's Word, we're sometimes going behind that tapestry. I know what the pictures are, but how did they get put together? And we walk behind and begin to see all the threads throughout Scripture that put that picture together. That's what we're doing here this morning. It's what you have to do with a book of prophecy. It's just not clear on the surface of it. This threshing... <laughs> I've been having trouble saying that this morning. This threshing sledge will thresh the mountains and crush them. It alludes to judgment day when nothing will stand. In verse 16, Isaiah says this, You shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Why does it say that? Because he will crush the mountains and make the hills like chaff to be blown away by the wind. That's Christ. Paul likewise speaks of bringing high things low. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down everything, including mountains and hills, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. And he points to the gospel as the means of doing this. He's pointing to the gospel as the means of doing this. In Revelation sixteen twenty, John writes about the day of judgment. He says this, When every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. Whoa, whoa. So those are the threads. We're on the back of the tapestry, seeing all these threads throughout Scripture, so that we can see the picture on the front more clearly. In the book of Matthew, John the Baptist speaks of Christ. Listen to his description. This is Matthew three twelve. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you see the threads? You see how they're tied together behind the tapestry? Do you see the pictures now and what they're pointing to? That image is again taken from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 15, 7, the wrath of God is directed towards wayward Israel. Why? To purge the evil from among them in a temporal judgment, one that took place in their time, historically, an actual event. But in Matthew, it's clear that God's correction is directed at his children, but his wrath is directed at his enemies. There's the wheat, his children. There's the chaff, his enemies. The one he will preserve, they fall back in the basket. I've lost none that you have given to me. And the chaff is blown away. You may see them, but you'll never find them. God's elect will be preserved, but the evil chaff will be consumed by his wrath. The church has been waging war Tearing down strongholds for two thousand years, for two millennia, we are living stones, right in the household of God. Yeah, I'm going to suggest that we are embedded in Christ's threshing threshing sledge. Those little stones that you saw—that's us. That's us. Which is the gospel we proclaim. It separates the wheat from the chaff. That's what the gospel does. The gospel separates the wheat from the chaff. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword to divide. To divide parents from the children, husbands from wives. That is to separate the wheat from the chaff. He followed that metaphor with this declaration. This is important. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. We Christians are self-identifying as belonging to God. We are one with Christ. You may remember that sermon I gave a few weeks ago on our union with Christ and how important that is. We are one with Christ. So when we proclaim the gospel, we are serving as Christ's threshing sledge. finally got it out. We do the proclaiming. That's our job. That's what the act is that we are called to do. We do the proclaiming. But Christ does the separating by his spirit. Using the gospel as his sword. It is the word of God. The gospel is God's weapon of deliverance wielded by his people. That's us. It carries the full force of God's word. We don't often think of the gospel that way. We're trying to remember, what was point one? What was point three? Uh, It is a powerful weapon. It needs to be wielded with force, with conviction. carries the full force of God's word. It's going to accomplish His purposes. Uh, you'll never guess, but that's another promise from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 55, 11. God's word never leaves His mouth and never returns to Him without accomplishing the purposes for which He sent it. And the gospel is being sent by God for His purposes, and it will not be ineffective when we proclaim it. It will, without fail, summon every elect to salvation. It will, without fail, convict others of their, their opposition to God, their, their war that they're waging against God, their rebellion. It convicts them of that. It never, is never, is proclaimed without effect. It always has one effect or the other. Although, as with me, sometimes you think it had no effect. And it may be 20 years before they finally respond to it, like with me. Nonetheless, It is one of many, many of those stones wedged into that threshing sledge. And each of us is doing our job in our time as we have opportunity. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah foretells of the Christ who would conquer sin and death. And he foretells of the power of the gospel to level every mountain in its path. That's what's being described here. And I am suggesting... I am exhorting, I am bludgeoning you with the following thing. We all have a role to play in this. (laughs) We all have a role to play in this. A spiritual battle is fought in every generation. So when is this battle going to take place? You're in it. What about my kids? They're going to be in it. What about my kids' kids? They're going to be in it. The battle is ongoing. But every generation is called to fight it in its way, in its time as the people of God stand firm against the forces of evil. We stand firm. That was our theme for all of last year. We are to stand firm against the evil that we see. And in the midst of these conflicts, the first promise of God is our ultimate deliverance. Basically, he says to us, don't sweat it. You've been delivered. Not, you know, I'm going to deliver you at some point in the future, and if I remember your name right, no, no. You've been delivered in Jesus Christ and he will lose none of all those that have been given to him. That's why we can have hope, isn't it? That's why we have hope. And secondly, we're going to have his comfort in the midst of every adversity. His comfort is available to us. It is ours for the asking in the midst of every adversity that we have. We're not protected from adversity, but we are preserved in it. We're not protected from adversity, but we are preserved in the midst of that adversity. Throughout Scripture, God makes many promises like the ones we find here in Isaiah. They're precious to us personally, aren't they? We recite them in in the dark hours of the night, sitting on our beds in pain, fretting about our children and about our friends, about our parents, bringing our pleas before God, and these promises come to mind. They're precious to us. But I encourage you to see them as corporate promises as well I'd like you to see these as corporate promises as well they're made to the body of Jesus Christ as well as to individual believers so let me give you an example 1st Corinthians 10 13 memory verse for many of us no temptation or trial has overtaken you plural that is not common to man God is faithful he won't let you be tempted you is plural won't be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation it will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Those are plural yous. Y'all. It's a promise to the church and to our efforts as the church, as Christ's representative body in this world. We need each other if we are to fulfill the Great Commission. We cannot do it alone. We can't. We have a part to play and we can do our part, but we can't Fulfill the Great Commission alone. When we speak, we don't speak for ourselves alone, but also for the church. Big C. And little C. Oh, you're that church. Each of us is an ambassador of Christ. Each one of you is an ambassador of our Lord Jesus Christ. You represent him to others. Gathered together, we are the representation of Christ on earth. Gathered together, the people of God worldwide are the representation of Jesus Christ in this world. That's quite a burden to carry, isn't it? Quite a responsibility to think about. Yet, it's true. And yet, the good news is you're not alone. You have the body of Christ at work with you. You have the body of Christ supporting you. You have the body of Christ encouraging you. You have the body of Christ praying for you. You have the body of Christ correcting you. You have the body of Christ. You're not alone. The church is a force for good in the world, unlike government. If you didn't know, government is a necessary evil. It's not a force for good. But ask any politician and he'll claim that it is. The church is a force for good in the world, and so we must act forcefully to summon the elect to salvation. Listen. We Christians are supposed to be meek, right? But we are not weak. (laughs) We are weak only when we forget that we are in Christ. Christians are meek, but we are not weak in Christ. And every one of you who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is in Christ, and therefore you are strong in Him. As the gospel is proclaimed, it produces a backlash against the word of God and against the people of God. Please, be prepared to withstand the backlash. comes with the territory. God's word is our food. God's word is our strength. It's our defense, and it's our hope. But if it isn't applied to the life we live, it evaporates before our eyes. You have to make it part of your life. It has to govern the way that you think, the desires that you have, the affections that you form, the behavior, the conduct that you display to the world. It'll only be a fond memory if you don't apply it. It'll only be a fond memory of all, instead of being, all our hope and stay. How we respond to adversity is our testimony to the world of our faith in Christ and of our trust in God as our loving Father. As we endure those fiery trials that He brings to us, and the mocking and the opposition of this world, what does the promise of God's comfort look like? Well, Isaiah tells us, verses 17 through 20. It's beautiful. It's exquisite. He says that God himself will provide our comfort. Verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there isn't any, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Nice picture. Interesting promise. How are you going to do that? So he tells us. Tells us how he's going to do that. Verse 19. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set apart in the desert the cypress, the plain... There are plain trees that grow in England. Uh, Here we call them sycamores. And the pine together. Why? That they may see, that they may see, and they may know, that they may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. Even this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Created this oasis. Okay? That's the front of the tapestry. I see the picture. Give me a hint, what are those threads that comprise that picture behind the tapestry? We believers, we know this, we're told this, we believers are like trees planted by living waters, are we not? Producing our fruit in season, do we not? It's God's promises. it's a description of us as his people. This image is one of shade trees and water that were given here in Isaiah, creating an oasis in the desert. In Scripture, shade represents God's grace. If you didn't know that, anytime you see a tree being used in Scripture and they're in the shade of the tree, that's God's grace being exerted for His people, for their good and His glory. Shade represents His grace. God designed us to be extensions of His grace to other believers. I'm going to repeat that one because it's important. You need to understand this. God designed us. He designed each one of you here today to be extensions of his grace to other believers and to the world around us. And to the world around us. We are those trees. We are the ones beside living water. He plants us in the desert of this world to reveal in us, to reveal in us his grace and his mercy. In us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet that calls for a visible response from us. A visible response from us. Christ's compassion toward us in our adversity compels us. He compels us to be compassionate toward others. Because God's extended that compassion to us. And so we share with them the comfort which we ourselves have received. God's correction is exercised to make us stronger, not to break us. His fires are meant to purify, not to destroy Experiencing his correction enables us to speak with authority, with authority from personal experience of it, about the abundant love of God in the midst of that adversity. We're more likely to experience God in the valleys than in the mountaintops. That's just a fact. You grow most in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. Here in Colorado, we understand that. There's something called the tree line out there, right? And what grows above the tree line? Nothing. (laughs) Right? Right? So we grow most in those valleys. I'm going to close with this. Judgment awaits us all. But God has delivered us from its penalty through Jesus Christ our Lord, who paid for all our sins. And therefore we have peace. We have it, peace with God, and we may rest secure in his hands. However, however, we're being equipped by God for what he requires of us down the road. Each of us here is being equipped by God for what is going to be required of us down the road. Some of us are already down the road. That's when the battle heats up. He uses adversity as a crucible to prepare us for that day. So, please, embrace it. Embrace that adversity. Thank God for it. Let it teach you about God. Let it teach you about Christ so that you participate in his sufferings. Let it teach you about yourself. About both your weaknesses and also your strengths. Let it teach you. Learn from it. Adversity is designed to expose every idol you hold on to. (laughs) That's why God brings it to you. I don't have any idols. Oh, really? Let me show you. It exposes every idol you hold on to, forcing you to let go of them. So here's my caution to you. Don't fight it. Let go. Let God take them from you. Let him make you into his holy vessel, an effective weapon in this battle for the souls of men. If you do, you'll be able to tear down every stronghold that opposes the knowledge of God. You'll take captive every thought that opposes your obedience to Christ. Become spiritually minded. Become spiritually minded. There are whole books written on that by the Puritans, by the Reformers. Become spiritually minded. It begins in the heart. It begins in the heart with a desire to be used of God. It spreads to the mind with a conviction of the truth of God. And then it takes control of the will so that you act in accordance with what you believe about God (coughs) and about His gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. tell you what that's going to do. That's going to make your faith tangible to you and visible to others. That's what that does. It makes your faith tangible. You can actually lay hold of it. You can see it like something solid makes it tangible to you and visible to others. Ah, there goes a woman of God. Ah, there goes a man of God. How do you know? Because they're not being rattled by all the stuff that I see going on. They have peace. They have confidence. They have hope. Oh, that I might be one of them. It's a testimony. Judgment awaits us all. God delivers his people. He's even now preparing you for whatever battle lies ahead for you. He says to you today, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for these promises from your word. We thank you that you are our comfort. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that our faith is in you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you never cease working on us. Taking these rough edges that we have, which are useful at times, but smoothing us out and forming us into the image of Christ. We thank you for your patience with us. May we not grieve you by opposing your labors in us. Teach us this day what it is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.